<laughs> Welcome to the Chris and Neil or Neil and Chris show, depending on who introduces who first. Um, you know, one of the things that we might both do is give a little bit of a bio on ourselves, just so people have a better understanding of us and our relationship, and then we can go right into uh, why we're doing a podcast together and start it. So Chris, do you want to share a little bit about your background first? Yes, I was um, born and raised in New Orleans, Louisiana, and that's a city that's influenced me greatly. It's a, a, a city full of joy and uh, expression and uh, being in the moment. And, um, you know, I, um, I, I stayed in New Orleans for um, my undergraduate uh, work at um, Xavier University and Tulane University in New Orleans, and then... Um, they're studying uh, both economics and chemistry. Uh, my father's a physician. I thought I would go into medical school, but really um, was more interested in business. Um, and I, uh, when I left New Orleans, um, I went to New York and uh, worked briefly with Morgan Stanley on their bond trading desk before going to graduate school in Arizona. And um, I studied at Thunderbird, the American Graduate School of International Management, and then through that program, uh, studied in China. Uh, and coming out of grad school, it was the first, the time of the first Gulf War, and a deep recession. Um, and so I decided to go into business for myself with a, um, becoming an investment advisor and starting an investment firm, first under the offices of UBS, and then. American Express, and now my own independent registered investment advisory firm. So um, we work with clients, primarily with entrepreneurs, most importantly. So that's uh, the work I do, and I love it. And um, it's just great to, to be engaged and have an intercourse with the world in this way. So, And Neil, how about you? <laughs> my background, uh, I grew up in Mesa, Arizona, uh, the son of immigrants. My parents are born in Kenya, and everybody in my family is practically in their business. And that was really where most of my education came from, from um, going to see everything from rice companies to cement companies to whatever. Um, got my first real taste of, of business starting a cell phone store when I was 21, quickly expanded, expanded too quickly, um, and then I ended up selling my stores as I was about to expand even further. Uh, then I went and became a real estate investor uh, right before the boom, which was just a great time. You, you could throw dart and do really well at it. Uh, and mm -hmm. from there, natural progression, I started a high-temperature superconductor company. Uh, where I learned <laughs> <laughs> from real estate to superconductor. <laughs> <is> very logical. <laughs> where, where I learned a lot about IP and how to scale a tech company. And then from there, I sat on some boards and uh, decided that I could really help a lot more companies if I started a venture capital fund. Uh, so now we're mm. focused on life science investing in the venture capital world, and we're pretty hands-on. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, I think places I was influenced most were just my family seeing business. It was interesting to see New Orleans, and I'll jump into this in one second. Um, it was interesting how New Orleans uh, affected you, seeing you know, probably 15 different businesses every third summer in Kenya gave me a really interesting uh, backdrop 
versus what I was seeing, you know, in Mesa, Arizona, where I was growing up. Uh huh. Uh huh. And what what kind of distinction stood out for you um, in looking at business operations in Kenya versus the way businesses operated here in in, in Mesa, Arizona, where you grew up? Well, it was easier to get ahead in Kenya in some way because a lot of my relatives had gone away to college to uh, the UK and then they returned back to Kenya and were simply bought, bought and brought products back to Kenya. So mm. you didn't necessarily have to be quite as inventive if you were uh, part of an economy that was still growing and immature. You, you just needed mm-hmm. to service the economy. Um, mm-hmm. but probably the other big thing is I spent a lot of time in my grandfather's grocery store as a kid. And so just seeing how well he treated everybody, uh, even when he was mostly, uh, uh he wasn't as much a manager towards the end of his life. You know, he, he still went to his store every day cause he took great pride in it. Um, but it was interesting to see that a lot of people came back just to see him. It was very relationship based. And even the president of the country would come in and go grocery shopping occasionally and, you know, presidents obviously don't do grocery shopping in any country. But out of respect no, for him right. and out of the relationship with him, they did. Uh, mm-hmm. So that just taught me a lot about how to do business. Uh, and then a little bit about expansion. Every time I went to Kenya, it was bigger than the, you know, the couple of years previously. So Your grandfather's store grew too, you're saying. Huh? No, not the grocery store, just the normal I, development, you know. There's a, I, I think there's a big I, insurance building right next to where my grandmother lives now in Kenya that used to be the place where everybody burned trash, right? So, uh-huh. you know, it's a AAA uh, building in the field that was once there. Right. So uh-huh. it, I wasn't seeing that in Mesa, but it helped me understand where things were going to expand. Uh, at a really young age, I was at, you know, 8 and 10 years old, I was asking, why isn't there a building there? Why aren't people doing these things? Mm-hmm. So that kind of really stuck with me, seeing that growth. They were waiting for you, Neil. <laughs> then they got tired of waiting. Then they got tired of waiting. <laughs> Two yeah. years later, they got tired of, of having cows in that uh, pasture and decided to build a building there. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I, I, you know, I wanted to focus a little more today on uh, understanding more about your investment philosophy. I, I've, I don't know, have we known each other four years now, Chris? Or is it three years? Yeah, I think four. Since uh, 2012, I believe, is when we um, first met in the roundtable, Harvey McKay's uh, business group. So, and, and beyond my wife and a common friend of ours, Darius Campbell, you're the only other person I met who was kind of love at first sight, and I didn't know why. And it was because you were just so peaceful, and you had an air about you where you understood a lot of the world. And later did I learn you were uh, such a impressive investor and consistent investor and just that permeated to every part of your life and you've influenced me a, a lot of times so I'm really hoping to focus a little bit more on what made you who you are and how and the why is behind it um, just so I can learn to glean even more um, about how to be a better investor um, mm. I, I, I'm not asking you to give me your return numbers because I don't know that you could give them to me off the top of your head uh, but uh, my, my impression is you've averaged over 15% a year with one down year over the last 15 years, which is a really impressive number for most uh, RIAs where, I, I don't know, Ian, you're in the background. I don't know what the average is, but I think you were saying it's 6 or 7% was the average return. 
And he's yeah. doubling it? Yeah. Yeah, well, um, Ian, I'm sorry, I don't want to interrupt you, but I, um, you know, we manage a few different portfolios, and you're right, Neil, in that space we've averaged um, between 11 and 15%, depending on the, the um, strategy involved um, with those. Um, and it, it has been um, more challenging than ever before um, because the financial markets, the capital markets, have become such an object of public policy, very highly politicized. That's always been the case to a certain extent, but now it seems to extend pretty deeply. So, but, it, but it's there. <laughs> t- t- take me back a little bit, though, Chris. Uh, you were in New Orleans, uh, the son of a doctor, the grandson of a doctor. Uh, mm-hmm. What made you decide to go be an investor versus you were saying you got a chemistry degree? That's not something I even knew as well, economics and chemistry. What made you decide to go down this path? Um, did you have any inkling when you were a kid? Not really. Um, but I guess, uh, you know, part of it was just the timing of it. I um, I think the the kind of, when I was in college, it was the mid-80s, and the country had come out of a very long bear market from 66 to 82. Um, and, you know, um, Ronald Reagan was uh, uh, the president and really um, was gifted uh, as a speaker and, and inspirational. Um, and the the economy was uh, recovering very strongly. Paul Volcker, as uh, Fed chair, had kind of rescued the dollar and stabilized things. Um, and so there was um, a lot of growth, and uh, that interested me in, in the business world. Um, From what age? And I was probably, well, I um, first invested in 1983, so I was a freshman in college. Um, and I invested directly, um, and... Um, uh, technology stuff was new. Wang Labs was one of my purchases, and it went way, way up, and I felt brilliant. And then it crashed down on my head. Like a <laughs> <laughs> I realized, oh, I'm not so smart. I was just kind of lucky. Um, I'm happy to take luck, but I also want to be careful uh, and know, um, even when I've made money, have I made money for the right reasons, or did I just get lucky? Um, because I've I've made many mistakes in investing and will probably continue to, but I um, I want to know what those mistakes are and not just um, push them under the rug or anything. I want to keep learning from them, and even if I've made money in the I guess quote unquote wrong way, <laughs> unintended way, it wasn't the intentional way. Um, I want to know about it, and because that's a it's still a kind of error of commission. You know you. Um, committed an error in your thinking, even though it sort of turned out well. And it's good to know what did I miss. So anyway, with Wang Labs, I mean, it was just the beginning of the run-up there. and um, That was wonderful. I was just a squirrel and the acorn fell right on my head, I think. Um, and there were a few others like that, but um, that got me, that, that got the bug. And I would actually um, sometimes skip my <laughs> Chemistry labs were very long, and you could make them up. So, during the day, if the if it was still during trading hours, I had a 
uh, one of my organic chemistry labs, I would sometimes go down to, there was a, um, a Dean Witter Reynolds office. It changed <laughs> names. But it, was, right. uh, it was really luxurious and well-appointed. So it was kind of the best mousetrap, right? It had these walnut counters, and there were these old men who seemed kind of well-to-do who would hang around and trade shares, and there was a ticker, and I um, I laugh now because I, it's completely against the way I <laughs> even think about investing, but it just seemed that there was action and... Uh, um, and and some excitement there, and you know, and of course the place had this elegant and posh feel to it. So all of those things kind of contributed to my interest and intrigue and uh, desire to learn more about investing, and I was hooked. Let, let's try and break up your investing kind of career into three different sections, if we can, just so I can start to paint and understand a better picture of how you got to be this thoughtful person who is beating the market. Um, maybe you can break it up into three phases for us, and just today we can try and cover the first phase, and then you know maybe one of the hallmarks of, of our podcast can be just talking about what's going on in the economy. We can end with that. Although we should probably start with that normally. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I guess, you know, the... Um, the three phases. I was... Yeah, I was an excitable investor at first. I really didn't know what I didn't know. I didn't know what I was doing. Kind of uh, um, excited by all the storylines. And, you know, um, I was, um, I guess naive is the best word. Um, the, the Wall Street machine seemed to me um, to be at least initially, aligned with our interests. You know, why would they sell me a story that wasn't true? <laughs> if we make money, we can make money together. I'll be a repeat customer. But I, um, I kind of learned, not as quickly as I should have, but that, um, you know, Wall Street's in the moving business, not the storage business. And they really are um, promotional. And that uh, the, a lot of... Um, human nature, uh, all of it, is really evident there. The herding mentality, the desire for a story, um, exaggeration of facts, all of that. Um, uh, and just the, the venality, you know, the willingness to make a sale or commission versus providing a useful service. So initially, you know, I was, um, I'd read analyst reports and most of them, um, I think borrowed heavily from each other. That's still the case. <laughs> There's like not much deviation when you look at um, what analysts expect the earnings to be. And and I realized too um, from my time briefly as it was on the street that that's um, that's the game. The analysts really work um, almost as equally for the banks that they serve as they do for the companies they follow. No one wants to be kicked off of the. CEO's jet, private jet, you want access to the firm. And so, you know, you don't want to anger um, the firm by putting out a negative research report. So um, get used to the weasel words and the careful language and sometimes just the outright uh, exaggeration 
um, but mostly just sort of the hurting. You know, it's amazing how even today I look at all these analyst reports, and even if it's a if it's a well followed company, they all come within a penny of each other in their earnings estimates. It's like uh, who's doing the independent thinking here? So it really is up to the investor to think independently, and that was kind of the first learning um, to really line up your research and um, get out of the sales force field, uh, if you will, from from the the analyst community. And that's not to say they're all bad. You'll find some gems by doing your research yourself and then seeing um, who the good thinkers are on the street. Um, anyway, so that was kind of 1.0. And, um, you know, results were seemingly, uh, when I look back on that, kind of random um, and generally not so good. So um, I really... Uh, then discovered Warren Buffett in about 1986, I guess. Uh, and through him, Ben Graham and Walter Schloss and kind of the idea of um, value investing and um, just trying the, as best I could to determine the value of a company independent of its stock market price. Uh, and then seeing how the two matched up. And if one was in my favor meaning the intrinsic value of the company as best I could determine it or appraise it was much cheaper um, or much uh, the stock market price was much cheaper than the appraised value and it was a potential buy. Um, so, uh, but even then, you know, there are other learnings. Um, what's knowable and what's unknowable? <laughs> what's my circle of competence? Um, and those are things I'm still learning, but uh, and trying to expand on. But that was uh, that's really been kind of the uh, Chris 2.0, and that carried me pretty far. Um, I I started also to um, contradict, I guess, a little bit of um, some of Ben Graham's teaching um, by really. I've always had a love of history. Um, and especially uh, economic history. Um, you know, what it, it kind of stemmed from a, uh, I had a very conservative civics teacher in high school, and he would always ask, What makes America so great? What makes America so great? And that question's always stuck with me why um, our country developed so rapidly um, post industrial, and how we leapfrogged over so many of the European economies that uh, preceded us and had really a first mover advantage. Um, especially Mother England. So um, thinking about uh, macroeconomic, um, the backdrop uh, against which um, the the markets and the economy operated was kind of a, 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 a new phase in learning for me um, that started in, in late college and then grad school. So I, I'm curious a little bit more. One of the things I've always been... Uh amazed by is your historical library just within your head and I've wondered about how you're able to use that to be a better investor today. When did your love of history start and then when did you actually start to wonder more about economic history and compare it to where we are today or the moment you're in in you know 2009? Ah, gosh, when did my love of history start? I think it's kind of always been there, you know. I mean, I'd um, 
I read a lot about the Civil War when I was in high school. Um, um, Neil, you know a little bit about the history of my family, and in in New Orleans, it's um, the history is all around us. I mean, at least of, of this country, it's still fairly recent history, but by comparison to other parts of the U.S., it's an old city um, with old monuments. There's Civil War monuments everywhere, mostly Confederate ones, <laughs> celebrating the losers of the, the battles. But the, the cemeteries, you know, every summer we'd spend, um, it seems like, you know, all the funerals we'd go to, we'd spend a lot of time in the cemeteries and a lot of those monuments and the headstones going back into the 1700s, early 1700s, always intrigued me. So I've kind of always had that uh, bug, you know. And then when did um, you start, my, yeah, comparing to the economic history of, of what you were learning to, or what you had learned to what, where you are today? Because I think that's one of your big advantages. Yeah, I, um, you know, I was always intrigued, too, by the, the history that wasn't told. So my family, my the, my grandfather's grandfather was born enslaved on a plantation, the Whitney Plantation. Um, and as a child, I used to ride out there with my grandfather, who was the medical doctor. And we still had cousins living there. And um, he would treat them because they really didn't have, they were country people and didn't have the same access to medical care we had in the city. And I mean, the plantation itself was not that far outside New Orleans, an hour and a half or so. 90 minutes driving and a little longer back in the days when uh, there weren't the same highways. Uh, but still, it was a trip that, that uh, we made um, pretty regularly. Uh, and, it, and it always intrigued me, you know, what, are, what is this plantation culture? and Where did it come from and um, how did it die out? Because it was certainly, um, you know, a time that had passed the agricultural dominance, and even even New Orleans itself. You know, how did it go from being one of the wealthiest cities in the country, um, if not the wealthiest city in 1833 or um, the census of 1840 lists 60, I'm sorry, 82 millionaires in the U.S., um, about 62 of them from um, Natchez down to New Orleans. So that agricultural might um, and the, the economic strength, which was fleeting, <laughs> lasted for a while, you know, with cotton and sugar. Where did it go and what replaced it? Those things always uh, um, intrigue me and how economies change over time. Um, and, and just the impermanence of things, you know, the, the permanence of impermanence. <laughs> So that was always uh, something that was always fascinating to me. So and I don't so, know if I answered your question. Kind of, yeah, parts of it. I mean, it, there's always layers to the onion to understand. Uh, so you would say that the first phase of your investing life, uh, coupled with some of the history you were starting to learn, started when you were in college. 1983, you said mm -hmm. you discovered Ben Graham by 1986, along with Warren Buffett. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. And then by 1987, you were starting to disagree with some of the Ben Graham valuation methodologies and started to buy some of your own stock. Would you say this is like the first phase of 
Chris's investment, or does it a little more, or is there a little more flavor you want to add to it so we understand better? Yeah, well, I'll say I I would never. Um, I think Ben Graham, from my reading of him, is really a philosopher, and one of the smartest people I've ever encountered. So I wouldn't say I disagreed with him. But one of his tenets, and he's probably very wise in this, is that you don't have to worry about the macro environment if you do the micro homework. You know, if you really look at a company and their cash position and where they are and um, their place in the world and (laughs) the breakup value of the company and all of that, and then you look and the share price is... um, much lower than that appraised value, you don't have to worry about what's happening in China or in in Europe or all of that. Um, It's absolutely an energy saving (laughs) device, but also um, it tends to keep the investor very, very focused. Um, Of course, Ben um, was operating um, and doing so brilliantly during the depression um, and there were a lot of companies which were his favorites called net nets. You know, they were trading less than the share price was less than the the value of net current assets, <laughs> cash and receivables. <laughs> so just buy the company, get on the phone and collect those receivables. <laughs> Distribute the cash to yourself as a dividend. Seems so easy, but even a little <laughs> quaint now because, you know, those those companies just don't exist anymore. And of course, the investment community's grown, um, and the 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 investment philosophy that Ben espoused has um, gone more or less mainstream. You know the uh, CFA designation. There was no sort of professional class of investors when Ben Graham was operating. There were a lot of speculators. They were plungers, as they called them. Uh, even Bernard Baruch, who's highly regarded, was really kind of a uh, an early speculator um, dealing in large shares, but buying and selling and flipping, not um, evaluating the merits of a company in a detailed sort of micro analysis that uh, Ben Graham espoused. But I just kind of came to see the the global economy as a big factor, um, and especially when I started um, looking historically at um, big market swings in previous events and um, you know, the crash of 1987 was a big one for me. That um, the the Dow Jones Industrial Average dropped over 20% in a single day. I mean, today that would be like Armageddon <laughs> for reasons I'll touch on maybe later. But um, it was a big event, and I started to think, how can can this? Is there? Is it knowable? Is there a way that um, you can at least get your arms around or um, in some ways, forecast with a reasonable degree of accuracy these big market swings or dislocations that might come, um, and they're always exogenous shocks. So they're you know external shocks to the markets um, that are triggering events. Is there some kind of way you can foresee those? So I agree with Ben Graham. It's great to be micro uh, in your analysis and bottom-up, as they say, you know, looking at these companies individually, who's well-positioned, who's got great management, qualitative factors, and, of course, the quantitative, (laughs) what's that balance sheet look like, but also to consider the macro environment and think of second, third, and fourth-order effects and how those might um, 
benefit or harm your investment position or your thesis. Um, so uh, a little more energy is expended there. And it seems to make more sense now than ever because the global economy is so interlinked. Um, does make it harder. I mean, I, I can't really know from an armchair in Pasadena what's happening in China. Um, but I can know that I don't know, and that's something, <laughs> you know. Um, Chris, th this is a good jump-off point, I think. Um, I, I want to learn more about, you know, the different, the two other phases when we chat next. Um, mm -hmm. So you'll have to not tell me when we meet up in person next week, uh, even though okay. I'll, I'll want to know. <laughs> um, uh, mom's the word. You, you know, uh, I'm curious about how, and knowing that we're only going to spend a little bit more time, uh, I'm curious a little bit more about how you think the different potential election outcomes will affect the economy. So uh, mm. I guess putting you right into the hot seat, uh, not necessarily trying to predict whether Donald Trump will be the victor or Hillary Clinton will be the victor, but uh, do you have any sense watching these candidates and have you been able to use some of those indications before for a more defensive strategy or potentially more offensive strategy depending on how you thought it was going to go? Or, or does the presidential election actually affect anything other than confidence? Are they able to put economic policy in place quick enough? Part of the reason I yeah. ask is, is, you know, I guess when Bill Clinton ran for office, running against George W. Bush, who had lost, it seemed to me George, you know, I was 12, so not like I knew much about the economy <laughs> then. Um, but it seemed to me George W. Bush was a good president. And in retrospect, still not having yeah. studied so much of the effect or the lack of effect he'd made, um, it seemed like he was a great president. Um, yet he still lost because he couldn't affect the economics. And uh, obviously during a downturn, people are going to be looking somewhere else. I, I wondered some of the same stuff about Carter, right? Again, uh, Carter, I think, was in office just a few years after I was born. Um, but as I heard people talk about this peanut farmer and blaming him, I wondered whether he really had much to do with anything. So please go into some great depth in sharing how you think, uh, you know, uh, everybody but Ron Paul will affect the election if, if they're elected. Well, statistically, you probably are aware that the, the financial market, stock market in particular, has done better under Democratic presidents than um, administrations than it has under Republicans. I did not though, know that. Ironically, yeah, that's the statistical background, even though Republican um, administrations are supposed to be more business friendly. Um, so, I. Can you tell us why it, that is? Why is that? It's a great question. Maybe because, well, under Bill Clinton, it was clear to see there was a huge credit expansion under Greenspan, and Congress was was deadlocked, so they were at loggerheads. So they couldn't pass laws that really interfered with the economy. And in one sense, that created a nice sense of certainty. You know, um, um, taxes remained stable, um, not changing, so the goalposts didn't move. And um, that created an environment uh, where a lot of the, the businessman's risks were kind of um, removed or off the table. So... Um, I think that was a big, big part of it then. Um, 
And, I, you know, otherwise, I, I don't know. Um, I mean, it's multifactorial for sure, and it and it varies from administration to administration. And, um, you know, I, I, it's hard to, to say with any certainty um, if that might just be correlation, not causation, right? What, what, what's uh, your prediction on that? I mean, knowing that you have to make predictions all the time and you get to change them hours later with better data, or I, you probably don't change hours, but weeks later with better data. What is it, you know, I on would, February 18th at one eleven p.m.? Well, it's, it, this is free, so I'll speculate. I think that liberal administrations are more liberal with credit, too. And um, from my study of Austrian economics and my thinking about the credit cycle, I just think generally under democratic administrations, there's um, a propensity for more credit to flow. Um, and under conservative administrations, there's always a little bit of concern, at least um, voiced, if not um, legislated, that um, too much debt, too much credit is a bad thing. And I tend to agree with that, but hey, when you're pouring vodka in the punch bowl <laughs> and the party's <laughs> roaring, no one's complaining. They're, they're not feeling it until the next morning, right? When the hangover hits, so I, uh, I think that has something to do with it. And then leading up to the election, you know, there's that. There really is a uh, also a statistical um, correlation. The stock market has historically done very well in an election year. That is absolutely tied to the credit cycle, because the the Fed, uh, the central bank, even though they say that they're apolitical. Um, has always, 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 um, since they've existed, supported the incumbent administration, whether Republican or Democrat, by easing credit. Lowering interest rates or keeping them at least stable, usually lowering them, though, most of the time. Uh, again, that creates a little more uh, ease in credit and therefore a boost, a little cup of whiskey to the stock market making everyone feel good and supporting the incumbent bid for the White House. Um, so the, the, but today, can the Fed really cut rates? This is a great question because maybe they just raised rates a quarter point so that they could cut them again. <laughs> right? I, I wouldn't complain. It certainly seems that way, not just for the election reasons, but for other reasons as well. So they can be seen as doing something. And not doing nothing, um, but that gets back to human nature for more than the election cycle. Anyway, um, I don't know if it uh, matters too too much um, who's in the White House overall, other than those you know kind of qualitative considerations I've mentioned. Um, I guess we could get someone who's really um, anti-business. I don't know what that means <laughs> entirely, but. Though I have my own concerns that in some ways one of the things holding us back is the, the banking system and the current structure of credit in the economy. I think absolutely that's like uh, we're trying to grow with a 100-pound weight around our necks. Um, it's very hard to swim to the other shore um, and stand tall with that kind of burden, with the debt burdens that we've all accumulated. So there has to be some restructuring, um, but we can talk about that another time.
Chris, I think with that, we should wrap up. Uh, so yeah. this ends the first podcast for you and I. Hey, Neil. It was great to talk to you, man. Thank you. You asked some very good questions. They were thoughtful. Thank you, everybody. Mm-hmm. <laughs>